often don't think about God until the day the devil thinks about us. When things are going great, we go about life in a state of flow. But when something tragic happens to us or to the world, it stops us dead in our tracks. And even if we don't think of ourselves as religious, many of us will try prayer when all else seems to fail. And nothing is more terrifying than the idea of demonic possession. Because not only has the devil thought about you, he chose you. It's hard to imagine sharing your body with a demon. But according to a study by YouGov, 45% of Americans believe in demonic possession. Do you? I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. Late afternoon's darkness crept in until it enveloped every corner of the room. The shadows of candlelight danced on the plaster walls in response to the priest's chants and provided the only light to the room's black mood. The air was thick and smelled of sulfur. The space felt anxiously heavy and the atmosphere seemed resistant to what was about to take place. Emotions splashed over me like waves, some gentle and some with force. I'd never felt such fear and calm all at once. I knew my life would be changed forever, or at least I hoped it would. It felt like Rome. Not that I knew what Rome felt like, but it looked like what I'd seen of it on television. The vaulted ceilings, the stained glass, the arched pews, it all reminded me of a movie. We can't do it here, the older priest said, weathered face furrowed in frustration. This place is holy, and we're unprepared. None of the proper questions have been asked. We don't have time to move her. Look, she'll shift any minute. Besides, where can we take her now? For once, can we just forget all the rules and deal with what's important? The young priest ran his hand through his hair, a physical metaphor of pushing away the older one's objections. As I lay on the pulpit's floor, I tried not to watch them pace back and forth. They made me nervous. I couldn't understand what they were saying, yet their hauntingly foreign words were making me crazy. I wished they'd speak English. What are you saying? I finally asked. They stopped momentarily, exchanging glances with one another, but began again. Please, it hurts. Everything is going to be okay, the younger one said, brown hair hanging in his dark eyes. The older priest began praying louder, light eyes and hair shimmering in the candlelight. My body became more and more tense with every word. It was as if each syllable was a poison dart, piercing something deep and dark within me. Stop! I screamed. I rose up from the pulpit floor and tried to run away, but the younger man pinned me down, his hands pinching into my arms. What are you doing? I asked while trying to yank my arms out of his hands. 
I told you it's going to be okay. We're not going to hurt you, he whispered softly as his features relaxed. Something inside me told me to trust him, but the priest's prayers were so painful. It was like nothing I had ever experienced. I tried to lie back down, but before I could relax, I felt it again. The fiery burning spread from limb to limb. The smell of sulfur filled my nostrils, and the surge of something alien gripping my insides rose within me. It's coming, I said anxiously. We know, they replied in a calm unison. Their mouths spat agonizing words in seemingly slow motion, piercing like thorns in my flesh. Then I retreated, like every time before, I tucked myself away in a safe place buried deep in my mind. For a moment, I was glad to be there. Nothing could bother me in this little corner of my imagination. But before I knew it, the priest was bent over me, screaming in my face. The young one held me down, but my body fought him fiercely. But I wasn't struggling. Then a strange, terrifying voice boomed from an unknown source. It sounded like the same language the priests had spoken their prayers, but the voice was much deeper and had an echo that bellowed throughout the room. The old wooden windows began to shake as the rain and wind grew stronger outside. What's going on? I tried to say, but couldn't find my voice. The only voice rumbling was the deep, dark one. The priest's mouths moved, but no words came out. When I looked over at the young man still holding my wrists, his eyes were wide and frozen on mine. Something the priest said must have struck the beast inside me because it began to speak English. It growled, then spat, Welcome to my world. You think just because we're in a church you're safe? That's comical. There is nowhere on earth to hide. Where's your savior now, O oh holy one? Immediately, the two men backed away from me. That's when I realized where the voice was coming from. Where are your mighty fierce angels? Let's play, shall we? Let's see how many lashings it'll take for you to call me your god. It continued. They started repeating another prayer in unison. I tried to scream and fight, but I had no control over my body. For the first time, I was witness to the beast inside me. My body rose up from the floor. The beast's voice became louder until their prayers could no longer be heard, and before the men could escape, my body had attacked them. I watched helplessly as my arms swung at their faces, as my hands strangled their breath, as my mouth cursed them. It was surreal. Tell me who you'll serve, it said. Tell me who you'll worship. There's no God to save you. No one's here to keep me from stealing your life. The priest untangled himself from the beast and ran to the back of the church. The younger one still struggled to fight it off. I was surprised to see the other priest return. He had an offering plate filled with what appeared to be water. He screamed, I believe in the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He then tossed the water toward us. The window's glass cracked at its seal. I screamed as my body began to burn like it'd been set on fire. I was no longer in my safe place. Our shrieks filled the church 
and boomeranged back to us. For the first time, I could hear my own cries virtually hidden beneath its growl. We looked toward the priest. He flung more water upon us. I still had no control over my body, but I felt asleep toward him. I watched as three slashes appeared on his wrinkled face. He continued to pray while bloody tears streamed down his cheeks. My hand slashed him again, this time in the chest. My nails, which looked entirely foreign to me, ripped his robe. They were only recognizable by the deep shade of blue I'd talked Mom into purchasing for me at the drugstore the other day. The priest clung to the cross he wore around his neck and continued to stand fast. I would have cowered or ran, but he faced the beast inside me with a conviction like nothing I'd ever seen. The beast roared in rebellion. The older priest's face crinkled in response. What keeps me from killing you? It exclaimed. Though I shall walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. His voice trembled. You look scared to me. It laughed. For thou art with me, he continued, and looked at the stained glass window where his crucified Savior hung and was illuminated by a streetlight. The beast laughed and took another step closer to him. I tried to regain control of myself, but there was a block between my brain and my body. I could feel my body, but couldn't master it. It grabbed the priest's throat and raised him from the ground. I watched as his feet dangled inches above the wood floor. He gagged and tugged at my arm. My fingers began to strangle the life from him. The same fingers I'd played piano with for a summer. The same ones I used to write poetry. The one dressed with my grandmother's ring. I screamed for it to stop. A faint echo of my voice quivered throughout the sanctuary. A flash of hope crossed the priest's dimming eyes. The room then fell away like a backdrop in a play, and everything turned black. I was lost in nothingness for a short time, until I suddenly realized I was lying flat on the floor, head throbbing and fingers digging into the cold stone. What happened? I asked. The younger man was leaning over me, eyes wide with concern. Is he okay? I jumped up and looked around the room. I was still in the candlelit church, but the older priest was nowhere to be found. He'll live, he said solemnly. The candle flames danced ominously, as if they had been disturbed by something. Dark shadows lurked in the corners of the church, with the only light bleeding in from the stained glass window. I took a deep breath and said, Thank God. The man leaned away from me and collapsed on the floor. I'm so sorry, I whispered, his eyes filled with tears as he propped himself against one of the pews. So you were there the whole time, he asked, anxiously blowing out several short breaths. Not the entire time, no. I can only remember the last part of what happened. I could feel its pain when he threw water on us. I studied my arms to see if there were any visible burns. There weren't. I couldn't stop it. You must know that. I swear it wasn't me. I said, growing more desperate and trying to read his thoughts. He didn't say anything, but I could tell he doubted me. Doubted my story, and possibly doubted everything. Can I see him? 
I just want to apologize for what it's done, I asked. He shifted uncomfortably as a deep howling echoed outside the church. He looked at me as if astonished I'd even ask, Please, Father Frank has been through enough hell today, he finally said. I'll call your parents and tell them we're done. But we're not done. I still feel something. Deep inside the pit of me, I can still feel it lingering. Please believe me, I pleaded. Whatever you were doing was working. I've never been present for an episode until now. I've never seen it do anything until tonight. I pray you never see it again, he whispered. He slowly got up and walked into the back of the church, disappearing into the dark corridors where their offices were located. I lay back on the floor, trying to force my muscles to release their tension, and stared at the haunting glow of the crucifix. When I was in my early 20s, I suffered from sleep paralysis. At the time, I had never heard of sleep paralysis and didn't know what was happening to me. What I did know, or firmly believed I knew, was that a demon stood at the end of my bed at night. Those experiences sent me down a whirlwind of research and spiritual exploration, trying to make sense of what happened to me. So much so that I wrote a novel about possession that began with sleep paralysis. But sleep paralysis was just the beginning. What happened after made me wonder if that terrifying season of my life opened up a door that I may never be able to close. Scientists and skeptics would tell me it wasn't a demon standing at the end of my bed at night. It was a common phenomenon that happens to one in 10 people. During REM sleep, your body enters a state of temporary paralysis. When a person is in that in-between state of sleeping and waking, they become aware, but their bodies still can't move. They are frozen. All the while, their minds are racing and panicking. They're locked in their own body without the ability to move. But here's where science and the paranormal converge. During a sleep-related hallucination, the person begins to hear, see, sense, something else is there. And for most people, that something is evil. Some people, including myself, have the feeling that something is sitting on their chest. It's hard to breathe. It's threatening. For others, though, they may have an out-of-body experience or even feel this overwhelming sense of joy. But I wouldn't know anything about that. You can't talk about demon possession without discussing exorcisms. An exorcism is the practice of evicting demons, jinns, or other evil spirits from a person or a place. The process of an exorcism depends on the person's spiritual beliefs. It could involve an elaborate ritual or having the entity swear an oath to release its name. It may also include commanding it to leave in the name of a higher power, most notably a religious figure. 
The practice of an exorcism is ancient and is a part of the belief system of many cultures and religions. But is an exorcism akin to ritual magic? The English word conjurer comes from the Latin word that's the synonym for exorcist. According to an article by Dr. Francis Young, church-sanctioned exorcists were often referred to as conjurers, even though exorcisms were the church's answer to remedy against magic. Dr. Young says, quote, Until the 18th century, the line between the exorcist and the magician was frequently blurred and non-existent. Christianity is certainly not the only faith that performs exorcisms, but for the sake of time, I'm going to focus today on the exorcisms made famous by Western pop culture, most notably the films featuring exorcisms and involving the Catholic Church. In Catholicism, the exorcist will perform in the name of Jesus Christ. The Church has to give permission for an exorcism to take place. Exorcists follow a rite called the Major Exorcism, found in the Roman ritual. It lists guidelines to determine where an exorcism is needed, with careful care to be sure the person does not suffer from any psychological or physical illnesses. Every exorcist is an ordained priest that follows specific prayers according to the rubrics of the rite. They may use sacred icons and sacramentals during the ceremony. They call on Jesus and the Archangel Michael to help with the exorcisms. Oftentimes, one ceremony is not enough to rid someone of demonic possessions. It could take several years, which is exactly what happened with Emma Smith. Emma Smith is also known as Anna Eklund. She was born on March 23rd of 1882. It's reported that Emma suffered from repeated exorcisms spanning decades. Beginning at the age of 14, she exhibited behavior that her family and a priest believed to be demonic. Her case is considered to be one of the most well-documented cases of demonic possession in the 20th century. Though sources are a bit vague on this point, it's believed that both of Emma's parents were German immigrants who moved to Wisconsin when she was just a young girl. It's believed that Emma's father had made sexual advances toward her when she was just a child. And when she refused those advances, these behaviors started. People around her claimed that she showed an aversion to holy items and couldn't even walk into a church. It was also mentioned that she had disturbed thoughts and took part in unspeakable sexual acts. An article published in 1935 claimed that the source of Emma's possession came from her aunt, Mina, who was a local witch who put spells on herbs she seasoned her food with. Her aunt, Mina, was also reportedly Emma's father's lover. In an unpublished document called the Bunce Manuscript, Father Theophilius Reisinger, a Roman Catholic priest, exercised Emma in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, after first meeting her in New York, when she was only about 16 years old. In 1912, Reisinger gave her her first exorcism. Two decades later, he'd perform another extended exorcism on Emma, 
that lasted between August and December of 1928. During those exorcisms, it's documented that Emma had fits of rage when exposed to holy water. She hissed like a cat, hung from a doorway, howled, and even levitated. All of this broke Emma's body down. She couldn't eat and vomited what appeared to be tobacco leaves. Her limbs became swollen and she could speak in multiple languages unknown to her. Her behavior was so violent that some of the sisters at the convent where the exorcisms were taking place asked to be moved to a different convent. It was believed that Emma was possessed by Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus and her father, Jacob, who had cursed her with the help of his lover, her Aunt Mina. During the exorcism sessions, she spoke in a high falsetto voice, which the priests believed to be the voice of Emma's Aunt Mina. On the last day of her exorcism, the priests commanded the demons to depart to hell. Emma collapsed on the bed, called out the names of her demons, and repeated the word hell several times. She then spoke in her own voice, My Jesus, mercy, praised be Jesus Christ. The exorcism was considered successful, even though Emma continued to suffer from milder possessions after that. According to documentation, they were quite manageable. Emma died many years later. Her story was shared in a 1936 article in Time magazine and inspired the 2016 film, The Exorcism of Anna Eklund. Another notable case is that of Annalise Michael. She was a German woman who underwent 67 exorcisms in one year, ultimately leading to her death. When Annalise was 16 years old, she had a seizure and was diagnosed with psychosis caused by temporal lobe epilepsy. Soon after, she was diagnosed with depression and treated in a psychiatric hospital. By 20 years old, she'd begun to hear voices become intolerant to religious objects, and started having suicidal thoughts. For five years, doctors at the psychiatric hospital tried to help Annalise with medications. When that didn't work, her family became convinced that demonic possession was the cause of her problems. So her family appealed to the Catholic Church for an exorcism. Initially, the exorcism was rejected but in 1975, two priests got permission from the local bishop. The family stopped consulting doctors and began leaning into the help of the two priests. The 67 exorcism sessions resulted in Annalise dying of malnourishment and dehydration because she had stopped eating. She was only 23 years old. Both priests were convicted of negligent homicide. They were initially sentenced to six months in jail, but that sentence was reduced to three years of probation and a fine. The German priests would later retract their opinion that she was possessed. The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Requiem, and Annalise, the exorcist tapes, were all inspired by her story. Another interesting case is that of Roland Doe, a pseudonym to protect his identity. 
He was a 13-year-old boy who would become the inspiration for one of the most terrifying horror films to date, The Exorcist. When Roland was 13, he lost his beloved Aunt Harriet. His aunt had been a spiritualist who taught him to use a Ouija board. In January of 1949, soon after Harriet's death, Roland began having strange things happen. He heard scratching sounds from the floors and the walls in his room. His mattress would move on its own, and water started mysteriously dripping from the walls and from the pipes. His family sought help from doctors, psychiatrists, and their Lutheran minister, but no one was able to help young Roland. Their minister finally suggested reaching out to the Jesuits. Father E. Albert Hughes, the local Catholic priest, sought permission to perform an exorcism on Roland in February of 1949, and his request was granted. Roland was strapped to the mattress during the exorcism, but during the ceremony, the boy broke off a piece of the mattress spring and slashed the priest across his shoulders, so the exorcism was left unfinished. A few days later, Roland had scratches appear on him that read the word Lewis, which made his mother believe they needed to go to St. Louis, where they had family, and seek help there. A cousin of the family was attending St. Louis University at the time and put the family in touch with Father Walter H. Holleran and Reverend William Bowden. The two Jesuits agreed to perform an exorcism on Roland with the help of other assistants. The men experienced the same sort of happenings as with Roland's first exorcism, scratches on his body, the mattress violently shaking, and so on. The men observed and documented that Roland's demeanor was different at night than during the day. During the day, Roland was calm and seemed almost normal, but at night, he'd scream and have wild outbursts. Roland would make guttural sounds and things began to move mysteriously, flying across the room even. And Roland had an aversion to religious items. The letter X and a pitchfork-shaped scratch were observed appearing on the boy. These strange and bizarre occurrences happened every night for over a month. One night, Roland urinated on the bed and began cursing at the priests. Roland's parents took him to the hospital in St. Louis for further treatment. On April 18th, Roland woke up having seizures. He told the priest that Satan would always be with him, and the priest surrounded him with holy objects. After the priest had called on St. Michael to expel Satan from Roland's body, he came out of his trance and claimed to have seen St. Michael vanquished Satan on a great battlefield. The strange occurrences and behaviors stopped after that, and Roland went on to live a perfectly happy, normal life, reportedly even naming his son Michael after the saint that fought the devil and won. But a lot of these cases happened in the past. How many people believe they're possessed today? Though nearly half of Americans believe in demonic possession, most believe them to happen rarely. Yet in an article in Newsweek, June of 2022, claims that the demand for exorcist-trained priests had tripled in recent years. 
There are currently 290 exorcists in Italy, and some see 30 to 50 cases per day. The exorcists were reaching out to psychologists to help sift through people to determine who was actually possessed and who was mentally ill. But how do they spot the difference between mental illness and demonic possession? Signs of possession range, but often include vomiting, unusual physical strength, and the sudden ability to speak other languages, namely Hebrew, Aramaic, or Latin. And people who are believed to be possessed will often have a revulsion to religious items. Exorcisms seem to be veiled with mystery and plagued with misdeeds because of the infamous cases where things have gone awry. No doubt there are many others where things were resolved or helped. It's such a broad topic, it'd be impossible to cover everything. But to me, it seems that merging the spiritual with the science is the only cure. For those who have had paranormal experiences, it's unlikely that science will ever satisfy or explain away the mysterious things that happen to us. Perhaps there are no satisfying explanations because the science is lacking at this point in history. And for skeptics, it's unlikely that hearing about any paranormal experience, no matter how compelling, will ever sway them from the science. But at the end of the day, all good stories are a battle between good and evil. No matter what spiritual doctrine, if any, you choose. And good and evil both reside in the spiritual realms. But just in case you're wondering, I do not still see a demon at the foot of my bed at night. Thank goodness. I no longer experience sleep paralysis and haven't in many years. But I have witnessed evil spirits on a couple of occasions. I'm hesitant to even mention it here for fear that people will think I'm crazy. But that's why I'm so fascinated by this topic. Is it possible the encounters in my early adulthood opened that door? I can't say. But I sometimes wonder if that door has always been open for me. But that's a story for another day. I believe neither science nor fate has all of this figured out, making experiencers feel a little out of place. But I'll make a point to study both, just in case the devil ever thinks about me again. Fabled is produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles, with music by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoyed the fictional piece of this episode, you may also enjoy the novel that it came from. My newest book, Soul Breather, is the fictional t story of a girl who went through demonic possession and stigmata and came out with a divine gift. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Until next time, thank you for listening.